Mark 16, 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They had been saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The word of the Lord. Good morning, Highland. Um, I want to do a, a, a statement with you. I want you to say it with me. The statement goes like this. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Um, say that with me, please. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Um, I miss you guys. I miss the smiles and the hugs. I miss... Um, Rob Cunningham giving you the biggest bear hug you've ever had. He pushes the air out of your lungs, reminds you that you're alive. I miss uh, Randy Harris. He sits over here in first service. And the first time I preached here, uh, he put his hand over his face like this. And I thought, this is my preaching professor. And it turns out he just does that in every sermon. Um, I miss our little neighborhood that's right over here. All the people in our little church neighborhood that... Um, we get to see every week. I, I miss that. And I, I suppose I'm just kind of going through some stages of grief right now. I, I want to say I miss church, but this isn't church, really. I mean, that's both true and not true at the same time. Church has never been the building, as Suzetta said, but it's a gathering. It's a people. But the reality is I miss both. I used to work in Northern California, and that is a very laid-back part of the U.S. Billionaires and CEOs of startups don't own a tie. But in, in, the, in the church that, that we worked at, on Easter, everybody would dress up just a, a little bit. And, and this isn't the thought I'd weigh, but this isn't the way I thought I'd spend my, my first Easter here in Abilene. Uh, mostly I miss the food. I mean, I miss the people, but mostly I miss the food. I miss the potluck that would happen afterwards. We'd go to somebody's house and, and there'd, everyone would bring dishes and there'd be lamb and there'd be deviled eggs and the kids would be running around crazy. We'd have this Easter egg hunt. And then after that would just kind of be this lazy afternoon where you'd, you'd play games and you'd uh, sit around and maybe go for a hike. It's hard to imagine. It's only been four weeks that we've been online. It feels a lot longer than that. And it's interesting to think about how many things have changed in our lives. And sometimes in this process, I'm in that stage of grief, it's called bargaining, where I just want to make a deal to, to get it all back to normal. I just want things to feel normal again. But the reality is, 
this room is empty. I mean, this is more empty than a first service in July. This room is empty. And our instinct as a worship team is to try to like dissuade us from the painfully obvious. There are so many unknowns. And so I ask a few friends to reflect on their experience in this time about what worried them or scared them. And I wonder if you might find yourself where I've been, moving through those stages of grief, of anger or frustration or, or sadness or, or bargaining. Um, or if you might find yourself reflected in some of the things that they say. Right now, the things keeping me up at night are that I may be isolated for an extended period of time, that I'm not able to be with those that I care about and love right now, and that I may never see some of those people that I love again. I think right now, for me, there's, there's a lot of things to be afraid of, but the thing that feels most familiar to me is being afraid of getting sick. Having been someone who had a life-threatening disease, that fear just knows how to settle in. And so right now, um, my muscle memory and my brain says we should be afraid of getting sick because that's something I know really well. I think I'm most worried about how humanity will behave as this continues on. Um, I'm just hoping that we'll rise to the occasion. Fear, right now it stems from my family. A daughter 1,800 miles away spent two days in the hospital this week with complications from a miscarriage. Our son, 1,500 miles in the other direction, has been searching for a job for over two months. Throw in the threat of this virus in each of their cases and a wife who's a nurse at Hendrick, those are my fears. Maybe you found yourself in some of the things that my friends said, and I'm grateful for their reflections. I find it fascinating that the book of Mark has two endings. If you look in your Bible, there's a footnote that says something like, in verse 8, the most reliable and oldest manuscripts end here. Now, there's a few reasons why scholars believe this is true. The first is that the most ancient copies of Mark end in verse 8. And then there's other evidence like uh, early theologians like Origen don't quote or use Mark chapter 16, 9 through 20. And this is particularly interesting because Origen loved judgment texts. I mean, he could not pass up talking about a judgment text the way my son loves cans of shaving cream. And so that might lead you to the next question. Do we ignore the rest of Mark? Some of y'all are just catching on to that. He loves shaving cream. Do we just ignore the rest of Mark? No, because the received text is the inspired text. What we have in our Bibles is what's authoritative to our lives. It shapes how we live. But I think this is fascinating because it kind of reveals the story about how the Holy Spirit uh, brings us Scripture. And that story builds our faith. And, And so... It makes sense why someone thought the the ending of Mark left something to be desired. Verse 8 reads, Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. 
This is a terrible way to end a gospel. I mean, there's, there's no great commission. There's no road to Emmaus where two disciples realize that Jesus is being revealed and, and the breaking of bread and the drinking of the cup. There's no conversation that occurs over the warm coals of breakfast as Jesus pulls Peter back into the conversation. This is a terrible way to end a gospel. Just running away, telling no one out of fear. It leaves so many questions unanswered and so many threads loose, they're left untied. And at this point in the sermon, a, a, a more skilled preacher would make some sort of catchy phrase statement like, faith transforms fear into fierceness. And, and sometimes that's true. But I think the reality is that faith lives with fear. Dwight D. Eisenhower, who was the supreme commander of the Allies during World War II, uh, he has this great quote about courage. Uh, Julie Simer shared this with me this week, and it goes, Courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the assessment that something else is more important than fear. And, and then she made the comment, if we replace the word courage with faith, I think it fits into the ending of Mark. It's the kind of faith that nurses and doctors from our church that get up every morning and go to Abilene Regional or Hendrick or all the other places where they work to take care of the sick and the dying, knowing that they're risking their health to do so. It's the kind of faith like the firefighters and EMTs at our church that go into people's homes to provide care, even though they may get sick from going into that place. It's every time I go through a McDonald's drive through in the last six weeks, although there's really two reasons for that. And we have friends in, in Myanmar, like many of you have friends doing missions work around the world. And the decision that they made about faith and fear was one they made years ago. That there was something more important than the way they felt. And they chose to put their work into the kingdom of God. But the promise of our hope, the promise of the empty tomb, the promise that is sometimes uttered with whispered breath in the waiting room of a hospital, the promise that is uttered when your job dries up, and your faith that is, that is strained and wrung out and tested, it is faith that is uttered in the same breath as fear, that faith is enough because the empty tomb is enough. Even in a global pandemic. There's a certain beauty to Easter this year because it's stripping everything else away. There's no fancy Easter dresses. There's no big Easter egg hunts. There's no potlucks. There's no big gatherings and get-togethers. So many things have been stripped away that all we have is the empty tomb. And we find ourselves beside Mary and Mary Magdalene and, and Salome, and, and, and we too are left a little bewildered and scared because all we have is the empty tomb. But the beauty of this Easter, the truth that we confess is that the empty tomb is enough. And it still is.
We live with fear, but it's, it's not the only thing we live with. We also have faith. challenge for me is to continue trusting in the face of yet another more than subtle temptation to doubt and then to fume over my lack of control of the situation. The resurrection means that ultimately God will redeem all things. And although I might not see that in my life, I believe that and everything will be okay. The resurrection says I have no need to fear. There is no fear or pain in my life that is too big for God who raised Jesus from the dead, saved me from my sins and gave me life with him forever. The resurrection anchors my trust in the faithfulness of God and without it, I would have despair with no hope. A resurrection tells me that Jesus can face anything, that he loved me and us enough to face death that though I may face hard times, I can persist because of what Jesus did, and that though it may be hard, I'll be okay. I'll be different, but I will be okay. I think the resurrection informs my relationship with fear because it reminds me that God is present in the darkness. So I think the resurrection tells us that God doesn't make the fear go away. He doesn't replace the fear, but instead shows up in the fear and continually whispers, I'm here he comes into the darkness over and over again. We're surprised by the ending of Mark, but maybe we shouldn't be. The entire gospel has Jesus going ahead and the disciples are just scrambling to keep up, bewildered, trying to understand. And and the angel tells the women that Jesus has gone ahead to Galilee. Go find him. And Jesus is still going ahead. Jesus is still going ahead at the brink, at the edge of the kingdom, to the, to the, to the lip of the work. God is calling his people to follow, and it's here in Abilene, and it's around the world. If the resurrection doesn't scare you a little bit, it doesn't cause you to lean into the mystery and the wonder of what God does, I'm not sure you're paying attention. My favorite part in this text is where the angel says, go tell the disciples and Peter. Some translations say, go tell the disciples, especially Peter. But my my favorite translation is, even Peter. Even Peter. Those two words save Peter's trajectory from crashing and burning as a has-been to forgiven. God's love changes the world. And the the beauty of the tomb is it has one by one and heart by heart and mind by mind. Jesus says, come, I'm going ahead. Just see if you can catch me. And we're still trying to catch up to what God is doing in this world. It's how the largest cathedral in America is being converted into a field hospital. During Holy Week, the Cathedral of St. John in New York was retooled to serve the city in a different way. They, they emptied the nave of all the pews to make way for hospital beds and all the gilded lamps for ivy bag stands. We have this empty auditorium, but the stripped-down nature of the season reminds us that the church has never been a building with a sign, but a people with a mission. And some of the sweetest stories that I've heard in the last few weeks are families gathering together to share communion at their 
kitchen table for the first time in their lives and there was beauty, or beauty and meaning there or having conversations over board games or, or doing a crossword, or not a crossword, a jigsaw puzzle together. The empty tomb may be all you have this year, but it is enough. It's enough to change our lives and it's enough to change the world. The empty tomb is enough to reconcile our shame and our fear. Crucifixions are all about shame and power. That Rome has the power to do whatever it wants to you. you, They'll do it to your leaders and it'll do it to your criminals. It makes no difference. It was an unutterably painful way to die, but it isn't the gruesome horror of the cross in Mark. It's shame. You're hung naked, left to die, sometimes up there for days, on a hill for all to see. And the Romans would leave the pole there as a reminder, sometimes with the body on it to rot, that they were in control. Shame was the way of stripping away clothes, the alienation of the friends who betrayed him, the indignity of being mocked and derided by foot soldiers, of his body betraying him as he carried the crossbeam up the hill, every moment painfully engineered to strip the humanity away from the condemned. Shame has the power to take the part of you that buries the image of God and make you forget that it is there, to take your name. It makes others unfriend you and pretend like they never knew you. Fear has the power to paralyze you, to know that there is good to do, but simply ignore it for the false idols of security or comfort or safety. But there is a power in the universe that is greater than shame and it's greater than love, greater than fear. It's love. Love changes even Peter. Love changes even me. Love redeems us. Love cleanses us. Love brings us back to the table of our Father. It puts a ring on our finger. It puts new clothes on our backs. The empty tomb is enough to conquer shame, to conquer fear, to even conquer death. shame is a prison as cruel as a grave shame is a robber and he's come to take my name oh love is my redeemer lifting me up from the ground love is the power where my freedom song is found there ain't no I'm gonna rise up out of the ground 
to do something this Easter. Maybe it's something you've never done before. I want you to write the end of your resurrection story. Someone just couldn't take it anymore. It was just too much for them to leave Mark the way it was. And so they wrote another ending. And this one is kind of weird. It involves holding snakes and, and drinking poison. And maybe that's not your thing about how you express your discipleship. But there is another way that you are faithful to God. It says in Romans chapter 8, that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. There ain't no grave, there ain't no shame, there ain't no fear. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. 
The empty tomb is enough. So let's write that resurrection story together and let's see how it ends. Go in peace, church. Shame is a prison as cruel as a grave. Shame is a robber and he's come to take my name. Oh, love is my redeemer, lifting me up from the ground. Love is the power where my freedom song is found. There ain't no Ground. There ain't 